Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Storm surge, a tropical cyclone's most deadly threat. Many may recall images that flooded news outlets in 2018 following Category 5 Hurricane Michael after it sent a nearly 15-foot wall of water into the seaside town of Mexico Beach, Florida. If you've ever experienced storm surge, you then know how quickly a hurricane can send a wall of water rushing into homes and businesses, washing away lives and livelihoods. Today, we're joined by Jamie Rohn, leader of the Storm Surge Unit at the National Hurricane Center. Jamie will offer us an inside look to the inner workings of this life-saving agency and its critical forecast when we depend upon them. If you've ever heard the phrase, hide from the wind, but run from the water, today's discussion will make you understand why. Jamie, thank you for joining us on the Water Meets Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Now, if, for those true and blue weather geeks alum and fans and friends of the program, you might remember that Jamie Rohn appeared on the television version of the show several years ago. So it's really, I'm really thrilled to have him back here in the longer format podcast so that we can dig deeper into what he does. Let me give you a little background on Jamie. Uh, he has a bachelor's and master's degree from North Carolina State University. He joined the National Hurricane Center as a marine forecaster in the Tropical Analysis and Forecast Branch in 1999. He was appointed hurricane specialist in 2016, and he was appointed lead of the storm surge program there in 2008. Uh, Jamie's an outstanding colleague and does some very important work for the nation, but I don't know if he remembers or maybe he's heard the podcast, but the first question that I always ask has nothing to do with your job. It's more of a question about how you got interested in weather and climate related studies. Was it something from your childhood, a specific storm, or did you happen upon it later in life? Well, it turned out, ironically enough, that um, weather, I grew up in North Carolina, and um, weather was the the easiest way to get out of going to school, which was... Snow days back, you know, it was the, the, the way, way to go. And so um, I didn't really like school in the beginning. Um, so became very interested in, in a precipitation or, or P-type, winter weather precipitation um, in, in central North Carolina. And then um, for, I think you're used to it in Atlanta. You never really get a clean snow in North Carolina as much as you get this, um, this icing and changeover and, this really tight uh, rain snow line. And so obviously I became interested in that. It wasn't until later, you know, it got maybe uh, high school and college that uh, hurricanes started to intrigue me um, as a kind of approach to Eastern North Carolina. Yeah, I, I, I wondered, actually, one of the producers wanted to ask, wanted me to ask you if you even had a personal encounter with storm surge yourself over the years, perhaps in your early days or years in, in North Carolina. Yeah, you know, we used to frequent coastal North Carolina quite a bit growing up. My family did. You know, we were big, um, big fishing. And, and often we would go to the coast, uh, not during the periods that you know, people were most interested in, like summer. We would go during um, fall and springs and you would get these these big nor'easter uh, type events or, or non-tropical events. And um, I can remember one where I was just, you know, 
just fascinated with how the wind could push the water and the waves um, up along the coast and into the roads and the amount of dune erosion that could occur with one of these events. So that would have been my first encounter with storm surge. But, you know, the level storm surge happened late, late in my career. Um, it certainly wasn't anything I studied in, in college or it wasn't a, a path that I sort of set about, you know, you know, a lot of people, they know, you know, they want to do tornadoes or severe weather. Um, storm surge came late and it's been the best job I've ever had. Um, probably the best job I'll ever have. And um, I've, I've been doing it now for 11 years and I, it's just hard to envision doing anything else because it's so interesting. Well, that's a nice segue because for the listeners here, we're, we're in the midst of, uh, well, technically, as we're taping this, we're not in hurricane season, although when this airs, we will be. Uh, hurricane season starts June 1st. But even as we're taping this, we have Tropical Storm Bertha just off the Carolina coast, North Carolina coast, I believe. Uh, not not projected to be anything major. And as, as we were saying before we came on, probably too small and, and, and weak uh, and even quick passing through to really present a storm surge threat. But for the listeners of Weather Geeks podcast, Jamie, let's give us a storm surge 101. What is storm surge and why does it happen and why is it so dangerous? Yeah, it's, it's literally um, the strong winds of a storm and it could be any storm. Uh, it doesn't have to be hurricanes, but the strong winds of a storm, they just push the ocean towards land. And if the winds are strong enough um, onto land, which is, is normally dry, um, traditionally uh, storm surge is linked with hurricanes, tropical cyclones, because um, that's where you get kind of the strongest winds, but you can get it in any storm system um, that produces uh, you know, strong enough winds. And it has to be a, the scale, there's a scale issue. So, you know, it's, you got to have like a, a synoptic scale type uh, weather pattern to, to, you know, you can't be more like a, a tornado or a water spout. That's just from a scale perspective, too small. I apologize there. I'm trying to keep my mic muted. For those that are listening to Weather Geeks, this is a new era of doing the podcast in the COVID-19 era. And so we're trying some new things here. So I'm just trying to make sure our audio is clean. So apologize for that delay coming off mute there. Anybody that's had a Zoom or Google Hangout or Blue Jeans meeting knows the perennial talking with the mute on. I'm sure many of you are listening or getting a little chuckle about that. Um, so... Would you, and I've seen studies over the years that talked about, you know, we, wind certainly gets the most press sometimes, and it's the most dramatic aspect sometimes of hurricanes and tropical storms. But I know there have been studies by your former colleagues and colleagues at the National Hurricane to say water is really the deadliest aspect of, of a hurricane, a landfalling hurricane. Can you, can you sort of make sense of that or tell us why, why people say that? I, I think wind is, is something that's easy for people to understand um, because you see wind on a daily basis, whether you live at the coastline or not. Um, and so it's the part of a hurricane that is easiest to sort of wrap your brain around and, and comprehend. And from a societal perspective, um, hurricanes are very scary. And so human nature is, you know, to try to understand the threat and, and reconcile the threat. And wind is just an easy one for people to comprehend. But we've actually gone back and looked at mortality over the last several decades um, from, from hurricanes. And it turns out that wind is nowhere close to being the, um, the most dangerous component of a hurricane. Water is, and it really catches people by surprise. They, they just don't think water for whatever reason 
in a hurricane. But if you look at storm surge and freshwater um, inland flooding combined, three out of four individuals who lose their life in a hurricane, it comes at the hands of water. Um, and, and wind really only takes about one out of 10 of the lives lost. Um, so you know, we, we've gone through this era over the last 10 years or so, and you know, you've seen this, the Weather Channel has been a, a huge partner in this communication thrust where we're trying to get people to not think so much about wind, but think about water um, and not just coastal folks, but inland folks too, because um, we're seeing a real uptick in inland uh, flooding and hurricanes and, and unfortunately mortality with inland flooding, freshwater flooding ha has been on the rise. And this is something that, you know, colleagues and I recently published an article in the AMS bulletin of the AMS or redundant there, uh, talking about how to convey the water hazard more so from rainfall as, as we saw what has happened with Harvey and Florence in recent years. So I, I certainly resonate with this idea that the water, the wet side, if you will, rather than the windy side of the storm uh, is most important. That, that doesn't suggest that the winds are, certainly, are not dangerous. They, they certainly create their own problems as well. So I don't want to underplay that by any means. Uh, there's been discussion over the years, Jamie, about the Sapphire-Simpson scale because it really is a wind scale. Uh, and many people were like, well, it doesn't convey the water threat or at least the rainfall threat. But it does somewhat convey indirectly the storm surge threat, right? Because it's, the storm surge is so tied to, to the wind. Is that right? And, I mean, it's more we're trying to de-emphasize the uh, Sapphire-Simpson scale. Um, it still has some benefit for communicating the wind threat, especially on the way up as a storm is strengthening, it has great benefit for generating awareness that a storm is strengthening and from a wind perspective is more threatening. Um, however, the scale is not really good at communicating the other hazards such as a storm surge and, and uh, inland freshwater flooding and tornadoes and things like that. Um, so we've tried to de-emphasize it and get people to look at the the whole picture of a hurricane, not just the wind part. Yeah, and I think as you mentioned, Weather Channel and other communication partners are, I think, are key in that because though people like me are probably looking at the information that you all are are uh, putting out at the Hurricane Center and, and whatnot. Uh, much of the public relies on the Weather Channel and local news and perhaps even social media for the information they get. Which I want to pivot now. Not pivot, but just build on the discussion. Tell us about the National Hurricane Center, how it's organized and where your storm surge unit fits within it. Oh, great question. I think a few people have asked that. So we're relatively small, um, which sort of surprises people. Most people you know, in, in, envision this this massive, uh, you know, sort of NASA uh, command type center. But we're actually a pretty small building. You know, we're only about 50 or 60 people. Um, and then there's there's three branches um, or, or three uh, subunits within in that so there's the, the hurricane specialist unit, which most people are familiar with because that's the unit that puts out the hurricane for, forecast, the cone, you know, that's what people are most familiar with. We also have a marine, marine unit, which is focused for safety of life at sea. So um, with all the goods and services that are, are sort of transported across the, the Atlantic and Pacific, uh, as well as um, the significant um, 
that people doing, um, you know, sort of in the Caribbean, doing pleasure cruises and these sorts of things. So, I mean, at any one time, there could be 10,000 vessels within our area of responsibility. Um, and so that's a that's a big, big, big component of our uh, mission, which few people uh, know about. And then finally, we have a, what's called a technology and science branch, which is where Storm Surge is located. Um, and it's, it's um, it, so in the reason it's in the technology and science branch, which is a lot of people kind of ask that question, is we do so much research and development outside of uh, landfalling hurricanes. So we do a lot of uh, development of new products and forecasting techniques. Um, we actually do, we actually still do modeling, like hardcore modeling um, upgrades to our modeling system and verification of the modeling system. Um, we do, and a lot of people don't know this, but we actually do all of the risk mapping for the U.S. Um, to for the purposes of defining evacuation zones and evacuation protocols. Um, so we do that from Texas to Maine, and now we're expanding into other areas uh, such as Oconus or uh, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, uh, Guam, uh, Samoa, American Samoa. And so, you know, 95% of our work is is not the forecast and warning component. It's this off-season research development and, and risk mapping. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with Jamie Roan from the National Hurricane Center's Storm Surge Unit. He is a key component of the NHC activities. And in the previous segment, you heard about what the National Hurricane Center does. And I think there's some things that they do that you may not be aware of. And the reason I really asked that question, Jamie, is, you know, there's a lot of information out there on hurricanes. They've got a lot of weather enthusiasts, and that's good. I really, we definitely promote that. But when there's a hurricane or a tropical storm, the first place I make a beeline to is your website because I want to know what the National Hurricane Center is saying. And so it's important to establish this. I mean, you guys are the front line. Uh, the, you, know, the, you folks, I should say, I, don't, I hate to use those very gender specific terms, uh, are the front line for the best information on hurricanes. Um, but I want to kind of now get back to storm surge. We're talking with Jamie Rohn. Let me give you a little bit more about Jamie. He um, received the Service to America medal in 2019. It's the Sammies, the AKA the Oscars of government service. So congratulations for that awesome and well-deserved honor. He's also received the National Weather Service Isaac Klein Award in 2016 and the Department of Commerce Gold Medal, its highest honorary award. So I mean, if you're paying attention, these awards signify that someone at very high levels of our government values what Jamie Rohn and his colleagues, his team are doing. I'm, I'm certain Jamie would not take full credit. I know it's a team effort, and I, I know the kind of person Jamie is as well. But Jamie is the leader of this group, and so it's certainly appropriate that, he is, that he's uh, recognized. I want to kind of rewind back to storm surge. So storm surge is certainly very much dependent upon the storm itself and the winds and the 
orientation of the storm. Talk to us again at a very 101 level on why the storm surge is typically most um, uh, impactful or hazardous to the right of the storm's eye. Well, typically the uh, right side, if all things being equal and it's sort of a normal storm, the right side of the storm has the strongest winds. It's also um, in, in most situations where the winds are blowing most onshore, you know, directly at the land. That's not always the case. Uh, obviously, that's from an idealized perspective. Um, but, you know, it gets tricky because uh, storm surges like real estate, it's location, location, location in every location has different vulnerabilities. So you could have one place that's closer to the eye and has stronger winds, get less storm surge than another place, a hundred miles up the coast, which has less wind because that second place, maybe there's something about the coastline that makes it more vulnerable presence of a river or a bay or, you know, what have you. Um, and that's what makes the communication of, of surge so tricky. You know, everybody has these sort of preconceived notions of what it's going to be, what it's going to look like. Often that's formed by historical storms or their experiences with historical storms. Um, it turns out that when it comes to storm surge, history is um, a terrible, terrible guide. And um, often people who make poor decisions, um, they do it because they're basing it off some historical perception or some sort of historical uh, experience from some past storm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that is something that we struggle with in general when we're messaging uh, hurricane or tropical storm hazards. People have this sort of um, sort of personal experience or memories of their experiences. And as I always say, uh, experiences don't often a, a prepare you for anomaly situations. So, yeah, you've lived through certain hurricanes or certain storm surge situations, but have you lived through a Michael situation? It's inherently an anomaly. Uh, but what about like coastline and the shelf uh, as, as these storms approach? What are, are they first order or second order factors in terms of storm surge? In other words, um, I mean, given uh, a hurricane Michael level event, uh, would the storm surge be more or less dramatic depending on the coastline or shelf uh, topography? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, bathymetry or the, the continental shelf or how quickly the water gets deep as you move offshore, the depths of the ocean um, is often one of the most important components of, of a forecast. And Michael was um, I, I always say that, that Michael was a white knuckle a storm for us because it was in this really, really tricky spot where the bathymetry um, to the west and to the east, and especially to the east of the storm, was substantially different than it was uh, in New Mexico Beach, uh, where it made landfall. So if that storm would have moved in either direction, left or right, but especially to the right, just a, a, you know 20 miles or so, it would have been a totally different, a totally different event. Um, there would have been more storm surge from a depth perspective, but less wave, less wave action. Where it hit in Mexico, in Mexico Beach, it didn't produce, and I know this is going to sound insensitive, but it, it didn't produce from a depth perceptive, perspective that deep of water, but it produced incredibly violent um, wave action. If you've seen some of the video footage, and certainly you've seen the damage of footage, uh, Holmes White down to the to the slab, that's waves. That's the presence of waves um, versus depth of water. 
And from a forecast perspective, in, in communication spec perspective, it was just really challenging to try to like, it, it was almost like Michael was a, a tale of two storms. If it went to the right over towards uh, Appalachian Bay, um, it would have been deeper storm surge, which penetrated further inland, but less waves. Whereas if it stayed um, closer to Mexico beach, it would have not gone as far, you know, it's not depth, but more waves. And that was really hard to communicate. Is there, just in your career, is there a storm surge from a, uh, from a particular storm that just really sort of is the one that you recall when someone says, Jamie, what was the worst storm surge you've experienced or seen from a professional perspective? Um, from the worst perspective, um, uh, Katrina, uh, sir, I can remember being on the ground um, afterwards and looking at the damage. And it's the most chilling, surreal thing um, you've ever seen. It, it literally looked like a, a, a large scale bulldozer just scraped everything and, and moved inland and at some point stopped and left this mound of debris. And everything behind that or on the ocean side of that was just scraped down to the ground. The most remarkable, chilling footage I've ever seen. And and for the, I mean, I do I do go out and survey after every storm, and you see the most unusual things. I mean, you just see things that boggle the mind. Like um, Michael, I saw a teacup still sitting in the um, in the saucer, like the little tea saucer, um, on the ground, and I. I was trying to envision how that violent force, and yet these two things were still, you know, together. They weren't separated. I, I, I mean, you see things in trees that you think, how in the world did that get in the tree? Um, but to, to really answer your question, it was Sandy, for, for me personally, was the storm um, that really had a lasting impact. And I'm not sure I'll ever... Um, rid myself of the impact that that storm has. It haunted me for a long time personally, because we were able to predict the surge. It, the prediction part wasn't difficult. It was, you know, this was, this predated, Sandy predated all these advanced new products and warnings that we have now. And it, it felt like if you've ever had that dream where you're screaming for help or screaming for someone to hear you and nobody can hear you, that's what Sandy felt like personally on a personal level. And I just never, never forget that storm. And um, it, it, like I said, it probably haunted me for a solid year before I, I really um, picked up it and moved on. And once I did, though, I, I, I came out of it with this newfound um, uh, you know, passion or, or desire to ensure um, that we never lacked the ability to communicate that type of event ever again. I think the exact quote I made to someone internally, it was um, never again on U.S. soil. Wow, that that's, that's a pretty chilling statement you just made, given the storms that I know you've experienced uh, from a professional standpoint in your career. Uh, that Sandy, certainly Sandy had an impact. I think Sandy was one of those game-changing storms in our community in many ways. I mean, it forced us to rethink how we worn on the storms that are transitioning from a tropical to an extra tropical system. It forced us to think about jurisdictional issues. It's, it forced us to think about our modeling capacity here in the U.S. since the European model sniffed it out much earlier than, than our models did, did. So I'm not surprised to hear you say that. 
Yeah, it was um, so often meteorologists get enamored with the, the, the why, you know, why is Sandy transitioning? What are the forces at play? You know, what's the physics behind it? And sometimes we, we forget to communicate the what. Um, and it's, it's hard. It, it's hard as scientists to curtail that natural interest. Like we started off this show with how did you get interested in weather? Well, that was a natural curiosity. It's hard to curtail that during a disaster. But what separates the, the really good people in, in disaster communication and, and in forecasting these big high impact events are those who can at least temporarily quiet that curiosity and focus on the what and not the why. And when you focus on the what, um, you become a communicator and you say whatever you need to say to protect people uh, during that particular event. And, and, you know, you forget about the, the, the science and the whole forensics and the, you know, the why can come afterwards. There's weeks and months and years after a storm that we can dig into all of these, these scientific principles and debate them if necessary as a community. Um, but one of the things I'm hoping the community, the meteorological community, and you can already see it happening, will do is suspend that debate during a natural disaster and sort of come together as a community to focus on the, the impacts and, and what people should do. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard and enjoying this discussion with Jamie Rowan. And I, I wanted to say before we went to the break, I completely, I was almost standing up, giving a standing ovation over here when you talked about that last point you made, because, you know, we are all curious about weather and when hurricanes and climatic storms are coming, I often will tweet or say, please don't cheer for the storm. These things are deadly. They kill people. And so, I mean, again, we got into our fields because of that natural curiosity, but we have to realize that at the end of the day, um, there are lives on line, property at stake. And so, um, uh, it, it, it is an important sort of distinguishing uh, ability to, to kind of transition out of that, oh, wow, I've always been, always been fascinated by the hurricane to, oh, wow, this thing might kill people. And so I really appreciate your perspective on that. I, I want to pivot now in this last segment of the podcast. The, the National Hurricane Center recently implemented two new core surge products. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We're actually uh, we're doing a third. We're adding a third one this year. But oh, wow. to address your, your uh, first question... Um, so there's there, we have now an explicit warning. And when I say warning, I mean, warning in the formal sense of the word from a national weather service perspective, meaning your little thing that scrolls across the bottom of your, your TV, um, when your phone goes off. So I'm thinking like analogous to a flash flood warning or a tornado warning. 
historically, we only had wind-based warnings in hurricanes. But as I, uh, as we talked earlier, since water is the predominant killer in a hurricane, we needed a, a water-based warning for hurricanes. And so, for the first time ever, the U.S. has an explicit storm surge um, warning. And um, I, I'm happy to report that while we weren't the first country in the world to sort of go in this direction, our system is the most sophisticated in advance with respect to targeting and, and, and really refining the warning area so that if, you know, evacuations, if necessary, can, can be very efficient and, and very strategic. But the other thing we added was um, what we in the business call a inundation map, or that is basically just a high resolution depiction of where the water can go. So it shows you not only how far inland the water could go, but how deep the water could be. Um, and, and so it helps, um, you know, it helps, um, it's used heavily on the Weather Channel. It helps to convey this this notion that, that storm surge is not just a coastal phenomenon. A lot of people believe that it's just the first row of houses on the on the barrier island. But um, if you look at uh, past um, past hurricanes, water can penetrate um, sometimes a hundred or more miles inland. The uh, you know rivers. Uh, look at Florence. I mean, the worst storm surge flooding in Florence was Newburgh. It takes, uh, I haven't made the drive in a long time. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes to drive from New Bern to the coast, to the ocean. Wow. Yeah. Is that because they're kind of moving up into the inlet? Yeah, it just came right up the river. It came right up the river in the, in, you know, you've got a large volume of salt water being shoved into an increasingly narrow waterway in the Noost River. And it just filled it up, spilled out of its banks. And, you know, I had the opportunity and this is another thing I'll never forget in my career. I had the opportunity to interview the emergency manager in charge of, of that area. And he told me point blank that anyone who didn't know storm surge was coming here was living under a rock. And to, to be able to convey that and compare that to what we just talked about with Sandy, where I told you we were just struggling just to communicate. And yet here we have a case where um, the worst storm surge flooding in Florence was, you know, 100 miles inland. Um, yet we were able to convey it so crystal clear, so so effectively that the emergency manager said anyone who didn't know storm surge was coming here was living under a rock. Um, so the, those that's the power of those two new products. Yeah, I, I agree. And we we thank you all there on, on the ground working on those products and also for the foresight of NOAA management to kind of move in this direction. Uh, are you familiar with the new immersive mixed reality uh, technology? I, I don't know that I got that exactly right. I apologize to Weather Geek's Uber executive producer, Mike Chesterfield, if I didn't get it right. But this this new technology they're using where they're showing immersive graphics, almost three-dimensionalized, if you will. Um, yeah. Are, 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 do you feel that that's how, 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 how much of a game changer is that for communicating things like storm surge hazard to the public? So it's huge. And it, it speaks to exactly what we intended to do. Um, you know, when I first started 10 years ago, we talked to media and said, well, why aren't you talking about storm surge? And the, the, the fact that what they said in no uncertain terms is, is you haven't empowered us with data that is visually compelling and attractive enough to show on on air and and some of that uh, immersive technology, especially that which is done by the Weather Channel, is is speaks to the uh, the partnership. We're so, sort of supplying the data, 
And then they're using innovation and, and technology to turn that into this presentation, which speaks to the audience in, in a far better and more compelling way than anything I could say. Um, so it was so encouraging to see that partnership, that, that public-private partnership, um, the two sectors really working together. And absolutely, uh, if you talk to any social scientist about communicating risk, communicating weather threats, they will tell you in no uncertain terms that you have to make it personal. You have to let the person envision themselves in the phenomenon, which is exactly what that type of depiction is has done and enabled. I, I don't have enough good things to say about it. Yeah, I think I think part of the next phase of innovation within the weather community is not, I've often said this, not necessarily going to be with the next whiz bang model, satellite or radar, but it's going to be at the interface, the social sciences, the communication, the psychology, the visual presentation. So I know Noah is very much involved in things like that with facets and the hazard simplification program and others. So yeah. Very yeah, I mean, if, you, if you look at weather prediction, um, we've come a long way. I mean, you know, whether hurricane or otherwise, I mean, the, the ability to predict hurricanes three, four days out is just so good. And, and you know, that's the action. The, the reason I pick three or four days is that's usually when people are, are making decisions to, to move or evacuate if needed. Um, and our predictions are just so good. Um, over, it comes so far. I mean, I, I've been at Hurricane Center for 20 years. And when I look at the verification scores over the last three years, it it makes I mean, when when you're shocked by something that you were a part of that, that's really compelling uh, because it I mean, I just can't believe how good the, the hurricane forecasts have gotten. So it really has become more of a communication and getting people to trust, trust the forecast and take action. Yeah, I agree. I often use the hurricane example that you just spoke about to kind of as debunking for those that say, oh, weather forecasts are wrong and there have been no improvements. I think you know, there's a clear discernible improvement in hurricane track forecast and, and intensities lag some, but the track forecast is certainly there. Now, before we get out of here, Jamie, I, I, since you're at the National Hurricane Center, I can't, can't let you leave without getting your take on what, what your expectations are for the 2020 Atlanta hurricane season. I know Noah recently issued its projections. Um, how are you all gearing up for that? You know, this is going to surprise a lot of people to hear me say, um, I don't change my preparedness no matter what, you know, it doesn't matter what anybody forecasts um, from a seasonal perspective, high, low average, above average, whatever. Um, I approach every season um, the same because um Experience has taught me that uh, one sucker punched hurricane in the wrong spot, um, you know, is, is a big season. And, and, you know, for that community, that's a busy, busy year, no matter what else happens around them. And so, for, and I'm speaking personally too. I mean, I live in hurricane alley down here in South Florida, the things I do to prepare um, my house, I, I do it every year. I was working on, um, on, on my generator, making sure it's tuned up and ready to go over the weekend. Um, but I do that every year, every year I do that and, uh, check supplies and, and, and what have you. So it's, um, my expectation for the year is, um, I, I can't say that any of us know what will or won't come in the future, but I know the hurricane center will be there. 
um, and will be a reliable source, whether it's two hurricanes or 20 hurricanes. Um, we'll push out the forecast with the same accuracy that you've come to expect. Yeah, and we, we thank you for that. And unfortunately, that's where we have to end it. But before we do, it is time for our Geek of the Week. The Geek of the Week is really a person that we like to highlight, Jamie. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but we try to highlight someone that has been critical or interested in our field of, of meteorology. And I'm actually searching around for my notes here because I've been taking some notes on your discussion. It was so, so important. Um, this week's Geek of the Week is Megan Klee. Megan is a meteorology manager for the American Electric Power. She loves forecasting a weather system that definitely harnesses a lot of electricity. Mesoscale Convective Systems, or those of us in the weather geek world know that as MCSs for short. Megan loves a good ring of fire pattern across the central part of the country, which brings those MCSs to life. If you or someone you know uh, is a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media play pages. Now, there is one thing I wanted to get to, Jamie, before we get out of here, and I, I see that we have a little bit of... Um, we, we talk about... Um, uh, published a book, I should mention, called Storm Surge, Hurricane Sandy, Our Changing Climate and Extreme Weather of the Past. Can you talk about, I mean, you, you mentioned the sort of impact that Sandy had on you. Can you talk a little bit more about your book and, and sort of why it was so important for you? I'm sorry. I, I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> I, you know, I'm actually, yeah, because I am fumbling around with my notes, I am actually confusing that with our previous guest. <laughs> hey, I wish I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, maybe that's certainly um, uh, an impetus for you to write a book one day. Uh, we were talking with Adam Sobel and, and he was talking about uh, his book uh, earlier. And so uh, when you mentioned Sandy, I, I was conflating my notes here a little bit. But, uh, but no, that's actually a, a good and I'll, I'll, I'll give you something interesting. Um, from that. Um, so much of the hurricane narrative is um, takes years. And when I say narrative, the true story of a hurricane, it takes years for that information to surface and come out because it's so complicated and nuanced. And yet so many people try to define the narrative or write the narrative on a hurricane in the hours and days after it um, has occurred. And having gone through Sandy and, and dozens of other big hurricanes. Um, I, I want to really encourage people to take a breath. Um, often the most important people in a hurricane, um, whether it's the forecasters or disaster management, emergency management, civil defense, first responders, those are the really interesting stories. And they're too busy to tell their stories um, in the, the hours and days, or they're too tired uh, hours and days after a hurricane. Um, so, you know, you know, and this, you know, I'm speaking a lot to the folks on, on the Twitter, it, you know, don't let those first few hours or days of narrative define the storm. Sandy in the book by Adam uh, proved this um, so much of the really, really interesting and significant parts of a hurricane takes a long time uh, to work its way to the surface. Well, I, I, I want to thank my little notes gaff there because it set up a perfect synergy for you to address that question. But um, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. 
Oh, it was such a pleasure to be with you. And, and thank you for asking such uh, interesting questions. Yo, no, I, I, you know, some of those are coming off the top of my head, but I definitely want to give uh, major props to our, our weather production, our Weather Geeks production team to um, um, primarily Sarah Dillingham and Heather Zahns these days. So I always love to shout them out. A lot of people don't realize how much goes into this Weather Geeks podcast other than me just talking to the guests. So super shout out to our podcast uh, producers, uh, the technical staff like Rodney Higgins, who's working with us today and the various others that help support this podcast effort. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and this has been Weather Geeks. We'll see you next time.